This is not a bit. I'm not doing a bit. It's exhausting to suggest I'm doing a bit. If you still want to suggest I'm doing a bit, it's not a bit. So listen up, you slack-jawed podcast fans. My name is Alex Branson. I'm one of the hosts of E1, and I have written a novel. It's going to be published by Rare Bird on November 10th. It is called Water Wasted. And if you can't wait till November 10th, they are selling signed copies at rarebirdlit.com. Those signed books will ship in early October. So that'll be available about a month earlier than the official release will be on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent bookstores. All right. What's this episode about? What's this one? I mean, if chips worked, why can't... All right. On to the show. The following is an archived podcast presented by the Branson and Hudson Foundation for Podcast Recovery. This podcast is entitled, Where the Briar Leads. It is the first and only episode of the podcast. Welcome to episode one. All right, everyone take your seats. Hello, hello. Yes, okay, right here. Perfect. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where the Briar Leads, an old-fashioned storytelling roundtable for children where we spin classic yarns, tall tales, fables, and other whimsical stories for whippersnappers and their parents. It's a little bit of a, well, yeah, I hate to say it, a little bit of a sparse crowd today, but I do see some kids here. Most are asleep, but you know what they say, uh, the show must go on. We are here at the Story Festival here in Terre Haute, and we were originally supposed to go on at 6 p.m. on the main stage, but we got bumped for that band. What band was it that was playing? It was uh, Grand Funk Railroad, I think. Well, also the Plum Dandies opened. Oh, okay. So, yeah, they went on after, and... um, you know, but don't fret. The story festival is a long tradition and it's about stories. It started with just telling stories and it may be a little bit different now, but story festival is always about the stories, So we must tell them now. It's currently two o'clock in the morning and we don't want to keep you folks and your kitties up much longer. So let's introduce ourselves and we'll begin to tell you all some stories. I have three great storytellers here. My name is Billy Whippet. I'm a professor of American folklore. Uh, but here I like to do a little bit of uh, Aesop's fables. I am joined by Jensen Cedarwood. Hello, Jensen. Hello, friends. All right. And then also by Tesco Coppermug. Hello, Bill. Uh, I'm just really happy to be here. You know, I'm I'm uh, the 15th generation descended from wizards um, from Kentucky. So I always really have liked telling these stories that I consider kind of to be like family history, you know? Right, right, right. And last, but definitely not least, my close personal friend, Squino. Hello, Squino. Uh, my name is Squino, and I'm a reader. Perfect. Gentlemen, we got a good crowd here today. Let's go ahead and start telling some stories. Who would like to go first? Um, well, I can begin. I have a little bit of a uh, kind of a favorite, a bit of a zinger, if you will. Um, uh, it's a good opener. Go ahead. Please do. You started out with a little bit of uh, kind of a classic structure, kind of, I don't know, you know, a lot of these stories carry certain morality to them, which are passed down from generation to generation, which is one aspect about them that we love. But uh, this one is called The Golden Baby. So, 
Okay, we just we all need a nice drink, right? Okay. Well, I'll actually have a sip of mine too. Mm. You go right ahead and help yourself, okay? So yeah, wet your whistle. It's a lemon beer. Wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Um, a Rattler? Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure. What is that? Anyway, this is a- the so the golden baby. All right, everyone, quiet now. Once there was a large kingdom ruled by a king and queen. One day, in one of the many villages in this great kingdom, a baby was born to a peasant mother. This baby was not like any other child seen before. This baby was special because he was made entirely of gold. When the king learned of the news of this golden baby, he knew he had to see this treasure child. He ordered his men to bring the child to his court so he could then melt down the baby into a big gold chain. (laughs) (laughs) However, the queen would not hear of such a thing. The queen did not let the king melt down the golden baby into a huge chain to wear at all. The queen instead adopted the child and assured the mother it would have a long and wonderful life in the palace. The king knew he would have to wait for the golden baby to grow up and become old and simply die before he could have his chain. Oh, how long I must wait, the king thought. Eventually, the baby was finally a very old man, and he died too, before the king died. His health was poor because his golden body... (laughs) with the golden man finally dead the queen let the king have his body to make him into something that would last forever at last the king said i have my chain isn't it beautiful however when the king finally put on that golden chain the chain he waited a lifetime for it killed him as it was found the king was allergic to gold All right, well, everyone may clap. Story. I mean, did the king never have a crown, or was his his crown made of a gold alternative? Or I think he was, perhaps. I mean, I don't like to read too much into the details, but perhaps he was lied to that his crown was gold. Perhaps it was a fool's gold because, to me, I think this king was quite the fool. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to distract. Well, you got to rule over something. I don't want to distract from the storytelling here, but when I said earlier that I was descended from wizards in Kentucky, I got a lot of looks from the parents in the audience who thought that maybe I was talking about the clan or something. Oh, but I just okay. wanted to okay. say well, that I met like a normal wizard, like an actual just, uh, magical wizard. I, I've, I've defaced this kind of discrimination for centuries now. Um, My family No has. one would Tesco, like... Tesco, Tesco, work. We're kind of here to tell stories to children, uh, Tesco. Well, if I you wouldn't could. have brought it up, but I just saw the looks that I'm I was not even. Sh- not I'm not place. even sure why why you brought up your backstory at all. Well, a lot of people think that wizards only come from Europe, but there's actually a lot of American wizards, and they're not racist ones. They're just normal. I have a story wizards. I'd like to read. Please. Well, go if ahead. You have a, Tesco, if, if you if you would, uh, why don't you write down that story, and maybe we'll read it on the show. That's a great idea. Thank you, Squino. Well, I'll read that maybe on the autobiography show, not the fable um, show. As you wish. Well, many personal stories or biographies over time, over long spans of time, might eventually become fables or myths or legend. This story is titled The Pig and His Bottled Beer. Ooh. On a stump in the forest sat a large pink pig with a cute curly tail. 
He snorted and oinked in glee as he sat on his stump in the forest, laughing and singing, hoping the entire forest would see him. Nearby, however, a rabbit was in his burrow attempting to get some sleep, but he could not. The pig was simply making too much of a commotion, laughing and singing on his stump. Begrudgingly, the rabbit exited his burrow to interrogate this happy pig. The pig did not even notice the rabbit. He was so enraptured by song and glee. Excuse me, the rabbit said, Mr. Pig. The pig simply continued his song. That's when the rabbit noticed something strange. The pig appeared to be hoisting a small brown bottle in its front hooves and twirling it around. Bottled beer, bottled beer. If the beer is here, the pig will cheer, the pig sang. The rabbit poked the pig on his leg to get his attention. Ah, what do you want? Don't you see I'm trying to enjoy my bottled beer here, the pig yelled. How are you enjoying it? The rabbit asked. The cap is still on. You aren't even drinking it. You're just waving it around and singing. I'm going to drink it later, the pig said, matter-of-factly. I just, I just don't know why you're making such a display of your bottled beer when you haven't even tasted but a drop of it, the rabbit stated. Listen, rabbit, the pig said. I know what beer tastes like. I've had tons of beers. More beers than you would ever believe. If you even tried to drink the amount of beer that I drink on an average night, you'd throw up and die. I've been to like seven parties. I pop that shit and suck that shit down like it's water for me because it is. Whoa, whoa, and also, whoa. I don't even get drunk off of them anymore. I get so effing pumped when I go to see a beer because it makes me feel like the man to drink a beer. Anything can happen on a beer night. <laughs> So many stories. You can meet girls and stuff, and they're more likely to do sexual things with you because they are also off beer, and they make more impulsive decisions because they are drinking beer, and it makes their decision-making worse. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes, their decision-making gets so bad that they want to sleep with you. Interesting, the rabbit said. Perhaps you could spend your time improving your personality and overall physical attractiveness so that you could meet women instead, and then you wouldn't have to drink that vile brew that is beer. The pig placed his hoof onto his chin and appeared in deep thought. You know what, rabbit? The pig began. Maybe you are right. The pig hopped off the stump and approached the rabbit. He leaned down and smiled. The rabbit smiled back, happy that the pig would stop making so much noise so that he could go back to sleep. And as the rabbit turned to head back to his burrow, the pig stomped the rabbit with his mighty hooves, trapping the rabbit by his puffy tail. Then he brought the bottle of beer down on the rabbit's head, crushing it instantly. Then he stood up and laughed and laughed and laughed, and he laughed so hard that he threw up on the rabbit. Thinking that that wasn't enough, the pig began also urinating on the dead rabbit, and it smelled like vitamins. After all that was taken care of, the pig began to sing, Bottled beer! Bottled beer! The moral of the story is, mind your own business. Wow. Certainly the rabbit could have just, you know, maybe tucked his big long ears into his ear holes and maybe ignored the whole thing. Classic Aesop fable. I'm craving a beer right now. <laughs> oh, Squino. <laughs> Careful, it's only 3 a.m. I know, I know, I know. Squino always carries around that satchel full of them. 
Squino, I'm I'm uh, kind of craving one of your fables, actually, if you wouldn't mind treating us. Oh, of course. Um, let me just get my tablet out here. I just got it. I don't know how to use it. I'm not a tech person, but... Um, I think we're all old heads here. We're all used to our moleskins and our canvas and parchments. That's correct. I prefer the tactile uh, nature feel of a... Of an object I can create with myself instead of a flashy light um, slate here. But, you know, I've got to move on, and this is the easiest way to carry my stories. So let's get started. This one, oh, I'm just so delighted to bring you because this one I've read several times uh, before in preparation for this, <laughs> and I just can't get it out of my head. And it brings me such joy to, to bring it to you. This one is called Chewy Moss. As one word, Chewy Moss. Ooh. The I legend heard this one. of Chewy Moss is a tale that's said to be 100, sometimes 1,000s of years old. Chewy Moss is a creature so bad, so monstrous, so of legend that... People from all over the globe would gather to hunt the beast, of course. And also, of course, nobody had actually ever seen it. But people who disappeared claimed it was Chewy Moss. Rumors say Chewy Moss is 50 feet tall. Some say Chewy Moss gobbles up people whole for just its multivitamin. A human person is not even enough to qualify as a meal. Some say it's just an old, mad old man run away from the rest of society and living alone with himself has warped him into a mean guy. Anyway... On one particular of these chewy moss hunts, there was a man named Rosian Patanga. Now, (laughs) Rosian was a carpenter, specialized in making crosses. He was the number one crossmaker in the Tri-County area. Rosian, at some point in this hunt, was split from the group, wanderlust or something or another, And before he knew it, he was at a forest spring. And there was someone else, a woman, and a woman who seemingly knew nothing of decency, for she was nude. She giggled at the sight of another, at Rosian. She seemed to act sprightly, for she danced sprightly around spring. She began to swim in the spring so elegantly. Like nothing that Rosian Patanga, small town poor boy, had ever seen. And for the record, would he ever see? So he stood silent. And she swam, and she swam, and she swam. And he observed, and he observed, and he observed. Entranced, but also almost diplomatically. When he was done swimming, she dried off with a large star-shaped leaf and began to equip layers upon layers of pelt and moss and scrap and accessory, and the previous appearance had completely disappeared. 
She now looked nothing like man or woman, just a hulking, massive beast in the forest. And in a booming, genderless voice, he said, I am Chewy Moss. I am delighted to meet someone like you. It was hours later when Roj and Patanga walked back into town with a large corpse in tow. Nothing anybody had ever seen before. And the town showered him with riches for the rest of his life. The end. Wow. Is that like a get-rich-quick kind of story, I guess? You know, I really don't know. It's the mystery that, that keeps me coming back. But just the I mere suppose there's something in there. Just, just the mere mention of the name Chewy Moss just made me go white. You probably saw me. Oh, the blood drained from my face. My goodness, what a terrifying tale. Absolutely certain that any illustration of this would just bring me to the brink of pooping my pants for sure. Uh, Tesco, perhaps you have a story for us. Why, indeed I do. This one is called The Ugly Baby and the Caper of the Swan Swap. This story was written in the olden days. They called it the olden days because they didn't have any new kind of days yet. Not enough time had passed to have a second era of days or anything like that. Yes, everything was still olden back then, which is now, because this story is very old, and these words were written in the olden days, which again, for me, is right now, because I live in the olden days as the writer. Anyway, this story was in the days when everybody lived in a kingdom, and wizards were not yet hunted to extinction, and horses could talk. One day, there were like seven guys standing around trying to pull a sword out of a stone, and someone came up and said, <laughs> hey guys, there was a really ugly baby that just got born. Get a load of this ugly baby. You gotta see it for yourself. So they all gave up on the sword, and they started murmuring and hurried away excitedly to go see the ugly baby. Now, this was no ordinary ugly baby. It was the firstborn and only born son of the king, whose name was King Weasel Man. The animal the weasel had not yet been discovered. It was actually King Weasel Man who would discover it three years later and give it its titular name. Anyway, King Weasel Man's baby was far too ugly to become the next king. Even the peasants were laughing in its face, and the king didn't feel right to have the peasants murdered for it, because he, he too knew that the baby was too ugly to be kingly. Meanwhile, somewhere else in the kingdom, there was a different kind of baby born. This was no human baby. In fact, it was a swan, a very beautiful swan. All the other swans knew it was the most beautiful swan they had ever seen. Politically speaking, swans had already advanced past humans and had a democracy, so they weren't going to do something stupid like make the swan into a king, but they knew it was good looking. One day, the baby swan went on a field trip with the other swans into the castle. The human peasants would feed them bread, and it was a whole good deal. Anyway, remember the king? Well, the <laughs> king wasn't too happy about his ugly baby, so he threw it out the window. And luckily, <laughs> the baby landed on some hay, and he was okay, but now he had to make it out in the world all on his own. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, a baby can't talk, but swans can't talk either, so different creatures who can't talk normally can actually talk to each other. <laughs> Thus it was in the days of old. So the ugly baby saw the beautiful swan on his field trip to get some bread, and the baby was like, man, I'm hungry as fuck. And they threw me out the window, and now I'm just out here just doing my thing in the big city. 
And the beautiful swan was like, yeah, sure, man. Here's some bread to eat. And the baby said, you know, I'm a royal baby. I was supposed to be the king, but I'm too ugly. And the swan said, damn, that's crazy. We moved way beyond monarchy like thousands of years ago for swans. Actually, it would be cool to experience it, though. And the baby said, damn, we should trade places because you're beautiful. So you could be accepted into my family and be king. And me, well, I mean, I'm a baby and I'm dumb as shit right now, but maybe it'll turn out that I'm smart or something and I could be raised in a democracy and I'll thrive someday. Okay, said the swan. Okay, said the ugly baby. So they traded places. The ugly baby walked home with all the swans whose bellies were sated with bread. They were so full they didn't notice the beautiful swan was switched for an ugly baby. Inside the castle, the beautiful swan walked up to the king. They didn't have much protection for the king in those days. Most people were peasants, and peasants were far too stupid to usurp the throne. They'd usually stab themselves in the head before landing a blow. It's an offensive and untrue stereotype that those playing cards have a king stabbing himself in the head, because usually it was the peasants who were dumb enough to do that. Anyway, the beautiful swan said to the king, I saw your ugly baby, and we decided to switch places. Is it cool if I become the prince and heir apparent to this here throne? The king looked at the swan and saw indeed that he was as radiant as the sun and as beautiful as a swan. Okay, said the king. <laughs> I mean, it's better than the other option of my stupid baby being the king. Meanwhile, back at Swan Lake, the swans noticed the ugly baby who explained the whole story using details you already know, and so it's really not worth repeating here. The swans were like, damn, that baby is very ugly, so they made him hang out with the ugly duckling. The ugly duckling was so stupid, there was really nothing to talk to him about or do with him. Just really dull and dim-witted. <laughs> I don't have an example for you, but like you could imagine hanging out with him. It would not be very fun. The baby soon realized that democracy was not going to work out very well for him. He was just kind of stuck in a dead-end situation. Meanwhile, back at the castle, the king made a cool gold chain for the beautiful swan to wear. And in 10 years, that swan became king and was beloved around the whole land. Meanwhile, the ugly baby died from a bird disease, like the bird flu or one of those. Remember at the beginning of this story when I said that they had talking horses back then? What if I told you that I, the author of this story, am a talking horse? I can write too. But I digress. And if you think about the swan and the baby, well... You can see how there's a moral to the whole thing about how sometimes life, not, life is not fair unless you're a beautiful swan and then you should press your advantage. The end. Oh, wonderful. Wow. It's a beautiful story. So baby gave that swan a wonderful opportunity. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and he took it and his life was really good. And from a talking horse, no less. Did not know that. They used Everything. to write stories. In its right place. When I thought of the narrator, I thought of like a grizzled old man, but then you said it was the, the horse, and I thought, wow, could be a grizzled old horse. Yeah, there wasn't really uh, any kind of twist in the main plot, but that subplot was, I think, very surprising. Pretty wild, pretty wild stuff. I have another story uh, here. Go ahead, please. Oh, wow. Please do. This is one of my favorites. This is called The Frog and the Cream Cart. In the great forest, there lived a frog. Every morning, the frog would push his cart down the forest paths and sell his wonderful cream to the other residents of the forest. One day, the vole came across the same path as the frog. Oh, frog, I'm glad I've caught you. I would like two bottles of your cream, please. 
The frog was happy to oblige the foal, and with the tip of the cap, both were on their way. Next came down the trail the mink. Froggy frog, my shiny friend. Cream, cream, cream. It is a dream. I will take three. After the frog gave the mink his order, he went about his business as the mink sang a song, and he slinked and danced away. Lastly, the frog came down near the end of the path by his home, where he spotted the salamander sitting upon a rock with a box of tissues. The salamander was crying. Why do you cry, salamander? The frog asked. Well, you see, frog, I wish today to, to I wish today to have a bit of your cream, but I have no pavement to give you. It is simply the worst day in my salamander life. The frog took out the last bottle of cream from his little cart and placed it onto the rock in which the salamander sat. This cream is for you. I must give it away before it spoils today. No payment is necessary. The salamander now cried tears of joy. Frog. You're not only the nicest merchant in this forest, but the kindest soul. Will you share the cream with me? The frog sat down next to the salamander, and the two had a nice time enjoying that cream until the fireflies began to sparkle around them. And it was a pretty good day, to be sure. Wow, it sounded like a pretty good day indeed. Oh, it was a wonderful. I don't know. There's not really a moral there, but, you know, maybe just help out those just you know. Just maybe be nice and uh, eat some cream. No, that was just a pleasant one, huh? No twists, no turns, no badness. I, 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 I like really like it. <clears throat> walking down a nice street in your favorite town. It's like a nice, it's like a nice type of beer that uh, Squino hands you. It reminds me of a story about a cow. I'd like to uh, tell everyone if that's all right. Oh, a cow! Yes. Wow. It's not all right with me. Hey, I'm just kidding. Okay, <laughs> why not go from one cream Jensen. to the next cream? It's true. Well, this story is called The Lazy Cow. There was once a farmer that had a lazy cow. It refused to be butchered, and it would not make milk. It just hung out by the river all day, making a bunch of plant or eating a bunch of plants. One day... The farmer got upset and wanted to milk the cow, but the cow was across the river. Cow, called the farmer, cross the river so I can milk you. No, said the cow, I'm busy. You never do any work or help out. What are you busy doing, said the farmer. I'm busy, said the cow. I'm laying here thinking about how cool it would be if there was a movie where James Bond had to try and stop Ocean's Eleven from committing a bank robbery. (laughs) You good-for-nothing lazy cow, said the farmer. I hope nothing bad happens to me, says the lazy cow. The farmer gave up because he did not want to get his new shoes wet in the river. The cow ate all the plants he wanted, and he had a happy, healthy life, imagining all types of cool movies for the rest of his days. The moral of this story is there could be a sequel where James Bond and Ocean's Eleven team up, even though they were against each other (laughs) in the first movie. Wow, I think we would all like to see both of those movies. It'd be wonderful. The cow, you know, they wonderful story. One of my favorites. I hope the farmer finds out he's sitting on a gold mine. Oh, is that a different story? Perhaps it's oil. Oh, well, oh my goodness. 
All right. Uh, I have one that I would like to impart Let's on you. Hear oh, go Let's ahead, hear it. Oh, go oh, ahead. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but, oh, it's kind of long, so let me just... I'm, I've been sitting here with my collection of... In the throat. Uh, there we go. Give him a paper towel. And- now, this one is called... <laughs> the Carp Who Knew. A long time ago, there were houses, too. One belonging to the Chapmisters, the other Bugaboo. And neither liked each other much. They lived opposite, might as well. The Chapmisters on the hill, the Bugaboo in the dell. Where they lived was even so different. One fine day, a day in the land, a chapmister and bugaboo found each other by a lake and at hand, and the area's air around them changed. Hatred swelled in each of them, for they hated each other so, and before anybody could tell when, they were locked in pugilism. Son and son, each from a father, fought fiercely and reckless, and never thought why, and didn't bother. This is just the way. After a scrap and struggle of claw and bite, the chap missed her on a recall in his prior, armed with a knife. In no time he brandished it, introducing it to the fight, and used it unmatched. His knife registered and applied. Its sharpness and design made a purchase, sticking in plumply into the bugaboo's side, matchmaking him to his end. Days passed, and there was a talk of the town, but nobody knew the culprit. Nobody could know. The only witness of the crime is not of renown, or even expected. One fine day, yet again, but later, the chapmister who did the done returned to the scene of the crime, a crater of the biggest asteroid of his life. A voice called to him, the chapmister, sonorous and calm, and indeed true blue, for what it said was honesty's sister, fact, and by all accounts verified. You did it! You did it! The voice proceeded, You did it! You did it! At once he heard his shoes cemented. Stop what you say! No, no, this is unneeded! Bearing no traces of authenticity. You did it! You did it! You did it! The voice continued. So it dug ever deeper into his guilt, lacerating, resorting the, uh, resorting the sinewed, wearing him down to the edge of sanity. There, just then, something approached, just as sonorous and just as calm. Sure enough, it was a fish in pond water and coach, badged with a smile and good cheer. The carpoo knew had revealed itself promptly, and contrary to its serene appearance prior, it decided to blackmail as it would do oftly when it witnessed a man's sin. Let me into the ocean, my friend. If you do not meet my request, your life, your life, with expense, easily and at no extra cost, since my speech. 
The tap mister, sparing not moment, agreed, produced a large receptacle as transport, carried away the carp who knew the deed. Off to the sea, hopefully home free. Once to the shore, the carp who knew said one more thing before I leave you a free man. Is not only you free me, but kiss me too, and I'll be on my way. <laughs> At once the man refused. The one thing he could not do was kiss a fish. And so the fish infused his murderous vigor, taking a large bite of the chap mister's neck. His, his body fell into the tide with a splash. The carp who knew was set into the sea, but because there was no kiss, the carp turned to ash. And now nobody knew. The end. This is quite a scare. This is a scary bit, story. A bit Ooh. heavy for children, I would say. I'm not Might sure. Might want to turn the lights up a little bit no, in here. Just, but if I mean, a child ever commits <sighs> an act of sin and they come across a carp who who knows, they know what to do now. They got to kiss it. Got to kiss that Dude, fish. It's a useful lesson for today's. Got to marry that fish. I perhaps. think it's a. I think it's a metaphor. I don't think we should be encouraging children to kiss fish. I think if it's a carp. And they did something wrong, they should do it. Well, I don't think children are good at identifying different types of fish anyway, so... Well, a well that's why they're here at the library to learn. A goldfish uh, is simply a small carp, did you know? So perhaps children own goldfish, they must kiss their goldfish. Every child here, go should. home and kiss your goldfish. Squino, Squino, what's your take on such a tale? Well, I think if you're going to murder someone you, near a pond, no less, I would hope that it would be any, it would be a clownfish that sees it. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> oh, goodness. Tesco, no, do you have another... No clownfish uh, in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, clownfish. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you, Tesco, Sina. why don't you read us one? Delight okay. us, please. This one is called The Fable of the Millionaire's Fortune. This story takes place in the kingdom where Merlin lived. He was famous for being the only non-knight to be invited to the Knights of the Round Table. But he also sat at a different round table. It's where all the big business ballers got together to talk about liquidity and markets and big baller investment ideas like to do stuff with their venture capital. Sometimes they would have entrepreneurial peasants come and pitch them ideas. If they liked the idea, they would fund it. If they disliked it, they would not do anything supernatural to the peasants at all, like turning them into frogs or casting meteor on them. They would simply make the peasants go back to living in their wretched stink lives, living in a piss hole of shit in squalor and boundless misery. One day, there was a guy who came in with an idea. It was called liquid fire. Fire was just invented 10 years ago when a wizard cast thunder on a stick of dynamite and it blew up. They didn't know dynamite could blow up back in those days until the fire happened. So anyway, the guy said, I want to make liquid fire. And before the wizards even said anything, he was like, I know it's a stupid idea. It's so stupid. I'm so dumb. I don't even know why I came here. It's so stupid, 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 stupid. 
and the wizards had wanted to say, isn't that just lava that you're talking about with the liquid fire? And that was invented five years ago already. But the guy was such a downer that they got suckered into like not being mean to him. And so they were like, well, that sounds like lava, but maybe you could make it your own. You know, you could market it as original recipe liquid fire and you put your quaint peasant grandpa on the bottle on the label and that could work. And he said, no, no, it's dumb. It's a stupid idea. I'm so sorry. My father was right about me. Ugh. And the wizard said, no, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. And he said, I guess I should just go impale myself on the samurai sword. Because in their town, their kingdom, they had one samurai and he got lost and he became a part of their whole community. But that was a whole different story. Anyway, the wizards <laughs> had enough of this guy's attitude. So they finally just decided, no, we're not going to fund your idea. And so he went back to his life where he was just a peasant. Now, weary traveler, you may ask why this tale is called the fable of the millionaire's fortune. Well, that's because Merlin was the millionaire and he just kept his fortune. For it is possible for the millionaire's fortune to become the peasant's folly. So the moral is to always have a million-dollar idea when you come across a millionaire, lest you be made a fool. Oh, wonderful. Not sure I, I understand. I'm not sure I understand the story. The moral of it at the end there was very clear. You better have a million-dollar idea. Because you never know when someone like Merlin could be around the corner. How do you know if it's a million-dollar idea, though, unless someone gives you a million dollars for it? Well, you have to have the millionaire's mindset, so you know. How do you have the millionaire's mindset if you're simply a peasant? Well, you don't have to have the millionaire's wallet, simply the millionaire's mindset that will eventually secure you the millionaire's wallet. But I think that's a different type of uh, book that I've, I've written a few self-help books, um, and I think that would maybe help you more. Than these Perhaps we should get into the next this story. Is called, this is called The Mariner's Cup. Far out in some eastern harbor, there was a man who had always worked the boats. He was an ugly man, but he had a kind eye, and his work was always the finest. At the end of the workday, whether he be at land in the taverns or out with his one true love at sea, he always drank from his favorite cup. The cup was made from ancient oak wood from a fallen branch. And whatever the mariner drank from it, be it water or milk or even actually cold beer, it always made him drunk. Mm. The cup became infamous among sailors and seamen alike. The mariner would sleep with the, with the cup tucked into his sun-weathered arms while he slept and dreamt of drinking more stuff out of the cup. One day, the most beautiful woman the mariner had ever seen waved at him from the docks as he was leaving on one of the tugboats. He became entranced, and after a month at sea, he could not get the woman off his mind. Upon returning to the harbor town, he spotted the woman he was in love with and approached her. My dear, I have dreamed of this moment every night since I saw you that day. I must marry you, said the mariner. Very well, the woman said, with a sensuality that made him feel drunk again. Get into that cup of yours, she told him. Get in my cup? But why? This is my drinking cup. It's very special. I'm not a drink. 
How could I get in? He asked. If you truly love me, you will do it, she replied. At that moment, the mariner put a foot into the wooden drinker, then another foot, and suddenly he fell in entirely, vanishing into the container. At that moment, the beautiful woman then picked up the mariner's cup and took a long, deep drink and wiped her mouth with the back of her delicate hand, <laughs> all before tossing the cup into the mud. The end. That was That's uh, amazing. Up. I love the story of the. I never tire of hearing of the Mariner's Cup. I love it's the a cup. cautionary tale. Um, I have something along the same lines. Um, about uh, the fairer sex, as it would be. This is a this is a great one. I don't know which one it is, but I'm sure it's going to be good. This one uh, is called the mystery of the women. In the dense woods of a distant forest, there was a village that only had men in it. These men were constantly getting tricked by the local fox, who was able to steal their livestock with ease. For over a decade, this fox got fat and happy off of this village. But eventually, he grew bored. Everything was simply too easy. And as the fox began to age, he wanted to taste the rush of potentially getting caught again. He packed his bindle, and he began to walk towards the town to bid his goodbye. The mayor of the village of only men greeted the fox at the town's entrance. Here to give up, the mayor said. No, no, never, the fox said. I come to bid you goodbye. I tire of easily stealing your pheasants and sheep. It has become trivial at this point, and I leave to seek a challenge. Tell me, where might I go that have people that could hope to catch me? Well, the mayor said, lighting a big wooden pipe. I know we are stupid. We're real dumb guys. We go cross-eyed when a bee lands on our noses and we sleep in our wet socks. We are, frankly speaking, a couple of dodo birds over here. Now I heard there is a village a few miles west that doesn't have any of the problems that we have. That is a village of only women. Only women, the fox said. And they are supposed to be more clever than you lot here? Oh yes, the mayor said. Because there are no women here, we spend all of our time looking for places to jack off. There's no locks here in the past, and the walls are really thin because they're made out of, like, mud. And uh, so you usually got to go way out in the woods to look for a place to jack off. But that's where bears are who will eat you, or where trolls are who will ask you weird riddles about time and death. Because we are all scouting out closets or cellars or attics to jack off in, we get nothing done. We neglect our crops, our livestock, even our general hygiene and way of life. I have heard that women do not do any of this because, well, the female orgasm is a myth. Interesting, the fox said, especially what you said about the female orgasm. Oh, yeah, the mayor said. Well, I'll be <laughs> off then, the fox said. Better get going. Hey, the fox said, turning around. Why were you waiting here at the town's entrance? Did you know I was coming? Why are you here alone? I'm looking for a place to jack off, the mayor said, and the fox left. After a short journey, the fox came upon a new, more vibrant village. It was well decorated and there were little glade plug-ins everywhere. The fox eagerly looked through their windows. 
While the living rooms were immaculate, the women of this village all had bedrooms with so many clothes on the ground that you couldn't see the floor, and the sinks were surrounded by unattended hair straighteners. Interesting creatures, the fox thought. He set up in a burrow no- nearby and staked out the pheasant pen. At night, he shuffled under the chicken wire, snapped a bird's neck, and escaped without hearing a peep. In the morning, frustrated at how easy it was, he approached the town's entrance with the pheasant in tow. Excuse me, the fox said. Who's in charge here? The mayor stepped forward. She looked confused at the small beast before her. Yes, the mayor said. I'm in charge here. Why was it so easy to steal your livestock? I'm upset. I was told you were supposed to be smarter, more organized than the men. What happened? This was just as easy here as it was back there, the fox yelled. Listen, the mayor said, getting down on one knee. We get people through here all the time trying to prove that women are smarter than men. I don't know what to tell you. It would be kind of weirder if we were smarter than men or vice versa. I just kind of think people attribute things to entire genders based on a couple smarter, dumb people that they know. I'm sorry. So the men lied, the fox said. The women, you guys aren't smarter than men? Let me tell you a secret, the mayor said. If women are so smart, why do eight out of ten women wear the wrong bra size? Seems pretty easy, you would think, to wear the right size of a clothing item you wear every day. But women mess it up. Eight out of ten do. It just happens. Yeah, the fox said, but that doesn't seem that bad. Oh yeah, the mayor added. Well, what about this? 60% of women wear the wrong size pad. Yeah, you heard me right. Pads for their periods. You know, that little thing that women have once a month, unless they are knocked up. And most women mess that up, too. If I was a guy looking at us chick, I think we were a couple boneheads. Can't even put our bras on right. Yeah, the fox said. But the guys are just kind of wandering around looking for somewhere to jack off. They aren't even jacking off. They're just looking for good places to jack off so that they can jack off later. It seems a little dumber than wearing a slightly ill-fitting bra. Yeah, but the pad thing, don't forget that too, the mayor said. It just doesn't seem as dumb as, I'm back, said a voice behind the fox. It was another fox. But this fox was a woman. Who are you, the male fox said. I'm a fox who was bored by constantly tricking these women here, so I ran off to an all-male village. But it turns out that was really easy too, because they're always jacking off, the female fox said. Wow. That's where I'm from. I just I just did the same thing here, the male fox said. The female fox and the male fox locked eyes. They saw little heart bubbles in the air. They fell in love instantly. The fox felt desire overtake him, and he leaned in to embrace with the female fox. But just as he was about to touch her, he double-taked, looking at her bra, which he noticed was very ill-fitting. Excuse me, the male <laughs> fox said. I have to go look for somewhere to jack off. The end. Wow. Mm-hmm. A classic fable. Thankfully, all the children have been brought home by their parents at this point. Uh, but uh, this is a wonderful tale that it's always been a favorite of mine. I was hoping you wouldn't read it tonight, but I'm well, actually glad now that you did. Back then, this was um, a story for children. Old as time. That's true. <laughs> right. But times have changed. Um, do, do we want? Do you want Squino or Tesco to read another one? Oh, I've got a lot. 
Please, Squino. Oh, go ahead. Um, and this one is interesting. I don't know. I don't know if we can. I don't know if we could beat the one about making out with a well, fish. Well, <laughs> allow me to put that to the test. <laughs> so this particular one is uh, part of a long line of a series uh, involving two principal characters. Uh, I think we may have heard one related earlier. Uh, this was involving the a toad and a salamander character uh, getting into some bits of uh, business that are quite risque. So uh, this one is called Posy and Sticks. In the woods not so far from Skysheer Rock is a path to a hanging garden. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. But this is where Stink and Molasses spend most of their time. Stink, the toad that he is, is sprawled out on the mossy stone of the auditorium in the hanging garden. Molasses, the salamander, is in a nearby vine swing, vine swinging along. If you went on any given day, this is where they would be. It was their spot. They would talk and laugh all day in the hanging gardens, sipping on burly dew drinks from the dig drop river that flowed through the gardens. They would write songs about nothing in particular, count things, best each other in word games, draw on walls. But their most <laughs> favorite thing to do was to urge each other to do outrageous things. Eat an entire tree! Trip the old man. Bring me back a lock of Darla Hare's hair. <laughs> Spend the night in Undertaker Cove. Go to the top of Vine Sheath Spire and light a fire. One day, Stink was feeling especially sinister in his challenge for molasses that day. I bet you can't take the newest egg of the becrusted owl, the big one, the one in the trunk of the wonder tree and Gadzook's timber. You're a chicken of a salamander and can't do it. But Molasses never takes words like that, especially from his friend Stink. Molasses went to the wonder tree, the greatest tree in the forest, the Gadzook's timber, which was next to the hanging gardens and sky sheer rock. The tree itself contended a place in the sky above, for it was so tall you would think it was a portal to the spirits. It was a home to the becrested owl. Molasses climbed most of the base with ease, at least until the upper reaches, when the atmosphere started to disagree and became ornery with storms and winds. To Molasses's fortune, he found a rare aperture in the side of the trunk and spent the night resting to resume his trip the next day. About midday next, Molasses had arrived at the nest of the becrusted owl. It was enormous, but more importantly, no owl to be found. Molasses leapt inside the large nest to look at the eggs and... There was one egg. He crept closer and closer, and the bigger and bigger it got. It was at least twice the size of molasses. He wondered how he was going to get this thing home. 
And also the look on Stink's face when he sees his hand at an impossible challenge was thwarted. And he had such a smile that didn't even make sense if I described it to you. Just then, however, a large shadow loomed from behind Molasses and made a dreadful owl-like sound. Strong, luminously green eyes appeared in a droolingly beakish smile. Ooh, it said. It spooked whatever daylights were left in molasses outside of molasses, and he leapt to hide behind the other side of the egg. He peeked ever so slightly at what did he find, but none other than stink and on stilts. Stink on stilts, <laughs> wearing a large cape. He, he was stepping on top of it, toppling and tripping, and he fell on his own cape. There was a lantern he used for the beaming eyes, uh, and it contained a large firefly, and Stink fell right on top of the firefly, squishing it and causing it, causing the nest, made mostly of flammables and otherwise dry, burnable matter, to be ignited. Molasses ran over to Stink, untying him from his ingenious costume, the entire nest aflame, and pulled him along to lift the egg out of the nest, saving it. The burning nest had drawn the attention of the great, becrested owl, which flew to see what was the matter at, at their home, fearing for its child, and lo and behold it found two would-be shouldn't-bees with a large something of loot in their grasp, for which now they would be misunderstood forever. The great becrested owl gobbled up Stink, and he gobbled up Molasses. This proved to be Stink's last challenge to Molasses. But the story doesn't end there, for inside the great owl could still be found those famous friends, the two Stink and Molasses, playing a game of dice. The end. Oh, I like that they lived at the end. Beautiful story. Thank you so much, Squeen. Wow. They live in the owl. You're welcome. They live there. It's a Joan of the Whale kind of, uh, I, I like that kind of uh, illusion. Yeah, but for dice, they're playing dice. Well, at least there's two. Well, what else are you going to do if you're stuck in an owl? This story is called The Christmas Genius. <laughs> <laughs> One year, in the best town there is, it was approaching wintertime. This time was especially a time of great revelry for the town. Because not only was it a time of festivities all around, but it was the time that Christmas comes. The entire town's favorite holiday. There'd be decorations of tinsel and lights, popcorn strands, jingle bells, silver bells, grapevine trees, lanterns, and so on and so forth. There'd be feasts and dancing, presents and pies, great bonfires and ice skating. And of course, you cannot forget the Christmas goose. The goose was always brought into town by the hunters, a large group of men from all over the town. Young boys would accompany their fathers as a kind of rite of passage to the hunt for the Christmas goose. The goose was, of course, the most infamous Canada goose, the most evil creature in all the world. Even more, the kind of goose in these parts were the size of a large truck, standing 10 feet tall. 
Just the one goose fed the entire town. But this year, there came very bad news. The mayor of the town made an announcement. It is with great sadness I must report to you good people. The geese have all left for Florida. There are no more to hunt. I hereby declare Christmas canceled. Great disarray overtook the town. How could there be no Christmas? We prepare all year for this. Could we have it without the goose? What are you, mad? There must be a goose. Will there ever be Christmas again? What has it all come to? Then, a beautiful voice singing, Oh, Christmas tree, rang out over the crowd. A small boy, not much older than eight years, silenced the entire town with his tune. He had never sing before and was thought to be dumb. <laughs> he wore a Christmas suit with a satin red bow tie and the shiniest black shoes that made the Christmas lights dazzle the eyes of the reflection. Wonderful people of this town, friends and family, we must not forget Christmas. We have all come together to share this time together, to be joyful and thankful all for one another. Why, that's little crying Rylan, the cooper said. <laughs> he never makes a peep. Wiping a tear from his eyes, the plump mayor pulled the small boy onto the platform. Oh, little crying Rylan, you have become our Christmas boy. It reminded us of the true meaning of it all. And with that, the sound was heard approaching. A great honking in the distance. That's a goose. That's a goose, someone cried out. They came back. It's a miracle, the mayor said, smiling at the child. He then called out, men, grab your rifles. We got a goose to cook. And with that, the entire town set out and killed the biggest goose they had ever seen. <laughs> and all were merry into the night singing Auld Lang Syne and drinking Christmas wine, which tastes like which tasted like gingerbread and elderberries. And the entire town glowed with laughter and the light of Christmas lights that were put there for Christmas. The end. Oh, wow. great I really, story. Christmas. I felt like I was there when the entire town just like pumped a thousand shots into the carcass of that big goose. God bless us. You know, I feel like the, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here on Christmas morning right now with a little old Chris Kringle. How about that? Mm. Um, Santa Claus himself. Perhaps, Squino, would you like to read another story? Oh, yes, I would. I have a delightful one here for you. I, well, I guess I'll just get right into it then. This one is called The Scone Maker and the Bobby Soxer. <laughs> the Scone Maker one fine day heard a noise peculiar in his scone-smithing store, one he'd never heard before. It's coming from where the mice come in. Could that really be a mouse? The scone maker looked in the mouse hole to see instead a tiny bobby soxer. Make me scones for me, and I will grant you eternal life. The scone maker agreed to make scones for the bobby soxer. He made scone after scone after scone, and the bobby soxer gobbled them up one after another. The bobby soxer was seemingly insatiable. Every time a new batch of scones was made, it was gone in a flash. The scone maker loved making scones, and so he tried his very best to keep up with the tiny Bobby Soxer, but 
As time went on, the promise of eternal life was looking more and more unappealing. He couldn't stand that something was draining him of his joy with making scones. So one other fine day, the scone maker used his time off from feeding the bobby soxer and devised an escape plan. For you see, the next batch of scones he makes, he decided, will have an explosive taste. That will oust the stranglehold that tiny Bobby Soxer has on my life and my happiness, he said. The next day, he made the Bobby Soxer the best batch of scones he had ever made, and with an extra special ingredients inside. The tiny Bobby Soxer ate them happily unaware, until it was too late. An explosion. This explosion, however, had an effect that wasn't intended. The blast from the explosive gunpowder scone didn't destroy her, but it doubled, no, tripled, no, quintupled her size, and she was the size of a regular human person like any other. The scone maker realized she was incredibly beautiful. He immediately fell in love with the no longer tiny Bobby Soxer. Before he could say anything to her, she thanked him and told him that it was her plan all along, for she had been tricked by a beauty tonic salesman into shrinking. She left the scone maker heartbroken. The end. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's a beautiful story here. Don't quite get the point of that one either, but... Uh, Sometimes the stories are well, just nice. I think if you make scones and you it's, meet a I Bobby Soxer, you want to put some explosives in it. And what um, do you got? A delicious dish? <laughs> Bill, would you want to read another? Oh, sure, sure, sure. I have a short one here that shouldn't be too much. I can see that the uh, band is actually trying to set up behind us. Uh, excuse me, gentlemen. I Yeah, we have... Yeah, yeah, no, no, we have this stage, all right? So just, yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, I'll get going. Don't worry. Okay, yeah. This story is called The Naked Snail. There was a little green snail in the forest that was tired. Every day he had to lug around his home with him. He traveled around the forest with his father and his mother, eating whatever it is that snails eat in order to stay alive. Salt, I think or whatever the opposite of salt is, slime. So let's just say slime. He's going around eating slime. Now make sure you always keep your shell on, Father Snail said. That way you'll be safe. You must keep your shell on in order to remain decent and pure, Mother Snail said. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I get it, said Little Snail. If you get naked, you'll die, Father Snail said. You'll go to hell, too, Mother Snail said. I get it. Come on, guys. I'm a kid. And wait, hell. Hell, what's that? Said the little snail. Oh, I meant to say snail hell. Oh, little snail said. <laughs> little snail went to go look for slime at the beach. He wanted to get away from mother and father. Be his own little snail man. But on the beach, he saw a weird sign. A very, very, very large human man was sitting on the beach. And he was very nasty and nude. The nude man 
was just on his ground, arcing his back, and he was moaning. The little snail noticed that that man looked really happy. He wanted to go talk to him. Greetings, little snail, the nude man said as the snail approached. Nude man, please tell me your secrets. How do you get so nude? How do you get your house off of you? How do you feel this free? And if you expose yourself like this to the world, do you still feel safe? Take your shell off, snail, and you'll see, said the nude man, writhing and twisting his nipples. Well, you know, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. I just wanted to know what it was like and if you can do it and if I'll be safe. And, uh, you know, you're a stranger and I don't know. And the nude man interrupted the snail by smashing him flat on the beach. And then the nude man laughed. I tricked you, the nude man said. The wounded snail sputtered out. I mean, not really. You just you just smashed me. <laughs> it's a good trick, the nude man says. I'm the winner. You're the loser. That's how these morals work. And that's the end. The moral of this story is whoever tricks you gets to tell you what a trick is and what a trick isn't. That's true. That poor snail. I have another story here. My last one. I mean, we're coming to our conclusion here, I believe, but I think we have some time. This story is called The Rat's Big Shirt. <laughs> there was once a rat who more than anything loved his big shirt. The shirt did not fit the rat, but the rat did not care. It liked the way it felt, and it liked the way it looked. The rat would often look into glass and declare, This shirt is simply perfect. It's maybe the best thing there is. To me, anyhow. One day, the rat went out as it usually did, proudly wearing the big shirt, of course. Passing by the confectionery, the shopkeep called out, Hey, rat! That's a nice-looking shirt! My goodness! You look like a king! The rat simply smiled and waved and went about his stroll. Passing by the fountain, the pigeons all stopped pecking at the garbage they loved and cooed over, Rat! Hey, over here, rat! You gotta let us see that shirt closer! What's the hurry? Man! Oh, man! What a shirt! The rat gave two thumbs up and winked at the pigeons, but did not stop. He had to get to his destination. Soon the rat passed by the hot dog cart, where the turtle insisted on giving him a free hot dog. For a shirt like that, I cannot charge you. It's a beautiful thing. Don't get mustard on it, please! The rat gladly accepted the kind gesture, enjoyed his hot dog as he walked. But now, he passed the broken down bus where he knew the big roach lived. <laughs> hey, rat! He heard something snicker from the dusty shadows. A gruesome clacking came from the bus, and the rat could see the grotesque eyes of the roach. Why not give me that shirt, huh? It doesn't even fit you. It would look far better on me. Come on. I don't even have fur. You're probably warm without that shirt, even. The rat was guarded, and with a dismissive look, waved away the roach. Frankly, roach, you would not look good in any shirt. It is ridiculous for a roach to wear clothes. The roach was silent and soon returned to the shadows. The rat watched for a moment and began to be on his way, when suddenly he could hear the roach crying inside the bus. 
After leaving the bus, the rat finally came to the park, where he would sit under a tree in his favorite big shirt and simply enjoy the day. As others passed by, admired his incredible look. But when he came over to the knoll and looked down upon the park, he saw the possum wearing an even bigger shirt. And everyone surrounding the possum in pure awe. How could this be, thought the rat. Possum doesn't even come out that day. Why is he here? I'll show him. But when the rat approached the crowd, not one soul looked at him or at his big shirt. And soon, Possum left with the entire entourage in his wake, laughing and smiling and having the best day the rat thought he would have. And as he left, the sun began to set and it was time to go home to be all alone with his big shirt. Oh, I'm going to have to get me a big shirt after that. I'm going to have to get me a Kleenex. It's so sad. Well, it's a you, lesson can, in there, you can wipe your I eyes think. on my big shirt when I get well, it. Well, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Squino, I understand you have one last story for us. <clears throat> oh, yes. Yes, I do. This is a very uh, short and sweet and good to eat. This one is called The Ladle and the Saucer. A very tiny house far from where anyone could reach it was the home of an old woman. She had lived there for years in solitude, at the top of a cliff overlooking a sea so vast and mysterious it was called the Porpoise Sea. This woman foraged for berries and nuts, legumes and fungi. From these, she created many soups, for a soup was her favorite food. And for these soups, she crafted her own, from her own materials a ladle and a saucer. But unbeknownst to their creator, the ladle and the saucer could speak. And one day, they spoke to each other. They quickly became harmonious. They became friends. They had tales to tell each other they never knew they knew. And they delighted each other in what they had to say. What they had most in common was they enjoyed being used by the old woman. That was what they were made for, after all. It's, but this, above a raison d'etre and anything else, says, was that this employment allowed them to stay together. As long as they were needed, they would never have to part. Uh, that is, until one day, of course. This old woman, on the straight line path as she was, passed away. For some time, they had not realized what had actually uh, transpired and continued their conversations they had ever so zealously and enjoyed with one another. Eventually, the old woman's home was discovered by a wayward merchant. And a merchant is always selling and, as such, always collecting. He collected the ladle and the saucer. Engaged in their normal duties as a ladle and a saucer and performed them well, uh, they were eventually showed in a large town, showed them, displayed their qualities, and to their dismay, they were sold to two different owners. The ladle first to a poor man in the city of Thatch. The saucer second to a rich woman in Paris. 
They were used, but when they weren't being used, they were sad. They dreamed in their sadness that they were so very apart. They were best friends, and to best friends' distance is a tough adversary. So they dreamed. They lamented the passing of the days in the house of the old woman being dipped and being spread and being poured over. They missed their discussions, their stories, their intelligence, their companionship. For they never met another utensil like the saucer and likewise the ladle. They dreamed so hard of another day like the one where their world was turned upside down that something would happen where something just as powerful flipped it right side up again. That they would see their precious friend, their one and only friend, and one that also even understood them beyond rarer quality. Time marches on, however, and both the ladle and the saucer soon forgot about each other and stopped talking once and for all. The end. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> Look. Ooh-wee, that, that's always such a hard one to read. <sighs> it appears that, well, everyone here is asleep, but I guess Grand Funk Railroad has been setting up behind us, and they're going to play a set. So I guess that is it for Where the Briar Leads in our old-fashioned storytelling. Thank you for listening, Thank everyone. you. Thank you for coming tonight. Like to thank, we all leave a little wiser than when we came. like to thank Squino and Tesco and Jensen oh, thank for, for sharing their stories with us. And uh, I'd like to thank you as well. Uh, they were all great stories, everybody. Lots of new characters. <laughs> we would like to bid you all good night. And the last event, wow, we're really behind on the Story Festival. Uh, everyone welcome Grand Funk Railroad. Uh, they're playing. So have a good night and come on stage, guys. Bye now. Good night. Good night.